This week we are going to continue in our series on values of the cross, and this is the sixth of the sermons in this series, and we'll be looking uh, at them over the, continuing them over the next few weeks, but I want today to look at Pentecostal worship and experience. I'm going to read today from Acts chapter 2, verse number 1, reading from the New King James today. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And notice, of course, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. And so I'm going to be dealing with this passage and a little bit of other things that go along with that preaching, really. And of course, the value that we're looking at is Pentecostal worship and experience, but I really want to talk about the practice of Pentecost today, the practice of Pentecost. So what is in a name? There are a lot of meanings behind names, and in fact, almost every name has some form of meaning and has some origin, some etymology, and some etymology being basically the study or the origin of words, and specifically as it comes to names, Many people probably don't really know the meaning of their names, or if they do, it's not that big of a deal. Uh, the name Mark is, uh, means warlike. It actually was really about the worship of uh, a Roman god, but it kind of over time morphed to it means warlike. And if you remember the story I told whenever uh, we were online only a few weeks ago, and the friend of mine that was throwing rocks at my brother I demonstrated my warlike name by taking out care of my friend there for throwing rocks at my brother while he was in the tree. But names right now really don't mean a whole lot when it comes to our culture. People pick names based on do they like the sound of it or is it a common name? And you could find all kind of interesting names in our society that really probably have no meaning whatsoever. It was different, however, during Bible days. Names had meaning. People were named because of a situation or a circumstance or God answering a prayer. The word Abraham means father of many. Abraham, who is 75, when God calls him out of the land of Ur of the Chaldees, and I'm going to change microphones here. And... Abraham, he's called out of Ur of the Chaldees, and his name is just Abram. He doesn't have any kids. He can't have kids. His wife is barren. And then God promises him that he's going to have kids, and when he does, he changes his name to Abraham, which means father of many, because God is going to be at work in that. Or Jacob, his name meant deceiver or supplanter. And he gets the name Jacob, Probably because when he's born, he is a twin. He's not an identical twin, but he's a twin. And as his older brother is coming out, 
he holds on and latches on to his heel and he comes out with him and he's, he's trying to either pull himself forward or pull his brother back and he lives up to that name as he deceives his brother, as he steals his birthright, as he takes uh, the blessings from his father Isaac. But then God changes his name when he has an encounter with God on the mountain and he wrestles with the angel until the breaking of the day and the angel says no more will your name be Jacob but it will be Israel or one who has power with God because of an, a, a situation or a circumstance or an event and so names mean things in the Bible and Moses his name means drawn out because he was taken out of the water or Daniel God is my judge or Ezekiel all of those things and, and if you're not familiar with this, I'll just tell you, almost every name in the Old Testament that ends with an E-L means God is something. Because E-L is the, the shortened form of Elohim, which is the Hebrew word for God. And so they're calling on God and they're naming people after God. Or Judah, which means praise because his mother was praising God because she had a son. Or all of the different tribes of Israel, their names, their origins, they mean something. And one more little tidbit of information. If you see a name that ends with an A-H in the Bible, that A-H is a shortened form of Yahweh. It's a part of God's name, so it's Yahweh is this or something of that nature. So just keep that in mind. Names mean things. Well, Pentecost is no different. Pentecost means something. There is. It's not just a, a word that, that just, eh, we need something to call this, but it means Something And it actually is derived from a, a Greek word, and it means 50, 50 days, penta. In fact, we see that today where penta has five or pentagon or whatever. You see all of that. It has that relationship to five. But Pentecost is a, a word that means 50. But it's, even though the name is Greek and its origin, the feast is Jewish. And Pentecost was seven weeks from the day after the Sabbath of Passover. So 50 days after Passover is the Feast of Pentecost. And so they would count 49 days from the day after, and so you get the seven weeks. And it was also, because of those seven weeks, or part of it, it was also called the Feast of Weeks in, in various Old Testament literature. So Pentecost, which was Greek, is 50 days, and it's so 50 days for the Feast of Weeks after that and and this feast was a time of celebrating the end of the harvest they would have a a beginning of the harvest celebration where they would take and they would go out into the the fields and they would take a sheaf of wheat that was unground it's unbaked and they would take that and they would wave it before the lord as an offering and saying this is going to be thank you for giving us this and we're going to give this back to you but then on pentecost at the end of the harvest season, they wouldn't take the raw grain, but they would take two loaves of fresh-baked bread, and they would wave them before the Lord as an offering, saying, this is what we have done with what you have given us, and thanking God for what He had provided for them. It was an important feast. It was an important festival. And in fact, because of its importance, it was one of three Jewish feasts that required a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. That if you didn't live in Jerusalem, you would have to travel to Jerusalem in order to participate in Pentecost or the festival or the Feast of Weeks. 
And so that is the background of what we see in Acts chapter 2, when the writer says, when the day of Pentecost was fully come. That Jews from all over the world have gathered in Jerusalem. They've made for some hundreds of miles and maybe thousands of miles, and they have traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate this required festival. Now keep in mind, not everybody would go to Jerusalem, but everybody who wanted to be in good standing with God, and they wanted to keep God's law just like it said, they would make this pilgrimage every year where they would go to Jerusalem to celebrate it. And because of this, there are thousands of extra people that are in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost, people, one of the two primary questions that I've been asked since I've been here in this process of planting a church, people asked two questions. The first question was, well, where do you meet? Or do you have a building or something along those lines where they're wanting to know, hey, do you have a place that you're calling your church home? I'm glad to say that we do have a place that we can call home during this time because you can't rent anything. We'd, we'd be all still online only if we didn't have this place, and I'm grateful for what God has done. But beyond that, the second question was this, well, what kind of church are you? And, and in fact, almost everybody, when they would throw out that, what kind of church are you, they would say, well, are you non-denominational? Before I could even answer, they would follow it up, and what, are you non-denominational? Which, interestingly, because I'm talking about names, and, and we are a, by the way, we are a Pentecostal church. That means something, and we'll get into all that that means but non-denominational, if you look in the, the dictionary and you look at this, the word denomination, it's about a group of people who have shared beliefs or whatever. But the third definition down is basically it's a name for something. And so non-denominational basically means we're no name. So I would tell you we're not a no-name church. We have a name. We are a Pentecostal church. We believe in the experience and the practice of Pentecost. And, and that stuff that took place in that Acts chapter 2, that first Pentecost that we see in the New Testament. It had been going on for a long time. It had been going on for thousands of years. But in the New Testament, it finally talks about Pentecost, and it brings that up. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come. So I want to delve into what does it mean to be Pentecostal as it relates to our name and as it relates to this passage in the Bible. Before I do that, I want you to understand this, is that, that we are called Pentecostals because of what happened in Acts chapter 2. That we believe and that you sh everybody should experience what happens in Acts chapter 2. That we preach it, we believe it, we experience it, and so we are Pentecostals. But we must also believe that the promise of Pentecost is for us. See, before Pentecost gets there in Acts chapter 2, there's all of this foreshadowing and foretelling that Jesus does and even John the Baptist does of what's going to take place at Pentecost. John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, he has just baptized Jesus and he says he does that to fulfill all righteousness. And I would just tell you, Jesus is being baptized to fulfill all righteousness, so if you need any more evidence about why we should be baptized, just follow the example of Jesus. Just get baptized, okay? 
And you can ask me about that later if you, if you want. But he said this, after talking about his baptism, he said of Jesus that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. From the beginning of Jesus' ministry at his baptism, the promise that Jesus is going to baptize people with the Spirit, and he tacks on this other thing, and with fire. I think the fire piece, and we'll, we'll talk about this, but I, I think the fire piece is, speaks of zealousness and passion, that it's not just some boring, well, okay, we'll just get this and no big deal. No, it should transform and change your life. It should make you different when you're baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he says, you must be born again in order to see the kingdom of heaven. Or to enter the kingdom of heaven, you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus says, well, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb? And Jesus says, marvel not that I say to you, you must be born again. He said, you must be born of the water and of the Spirit. Speaking of water baptism and Holy Spirit baptism that was required in order to get into the kingdom of heaven. This is speaking of Pentecost that's going to come. Jesus in John chapter 7, and in fact, this is most likely a Pentecostal festival. It is the Feast of Pentecost, but... When Jesus says in John chapter 7, on that last day, the great day of the feast, he stood up and he said, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me and I will give him water. And out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. He said, let him come and I will give him living water. It's going to flow out of his belly. And he said, to follow it up, he said, But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believed on him should receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Then he said this living water, the Bible says, it's going to come, it's going to happen, it's the Holy Spirit that's going to fill you, but it's not happening yet. You have to wait until Jesus is glorified. And of course we know that Jesus is glorified in Acts chapter 1 when he ascends to heaven. That is his glorification. And then that means that the promise can now come. Jesus would say in Acts chapter 1, and he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and to Judea and to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. He says when this promise comes, it's going to bring power. We have to believe that the promise of Pentecost is for us. That it's not just for the people in Acts chapter 2 or, or the, just for the people in Acts chapter 8 or 10 or 19, but it is for us today. And Peter would say later, further on in our text, in, in Acts chapter 2 verse 39, that the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. The promise is for you today. Anybody experienced the promise of Pentecost? Anybody thankful that they've experienced the promise of Pentecost? Would you give the Lord a hand clap of praise right now? So we are Pentecostal because we believe in the experience that took place at Pentecost. And we believe that it is normative and that everyone should have it. But we also must not only believe that, but expect the fulfillment of Pentecost like it happened in the Bible. 
look at your neighbor and say, well, you need to expect it like it happened in the Bible. And if you can't follow these points, they are in the, the church app, so you can follow along there if you would like to. But there are some interesting things that take place in the passage I read in our text when the day of Pentecost had fully come. They were all in one accord or with one accord in one place and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting and there appeared unto them divided or cloven tongues like as a fire and one set upon each of them. And they all began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. There are three things that take place in this text when the fulfillment of Pentecost comes. The first is there is the sound of a rushing mighty wind. I, I, I don't know that I could tell you definitively why that is the case. Why is there the sound of wind? In fact, this is the only time when people are filled with the Holy Ghost that we see wind. Or we hear or read of wind. But I, but I think that maybe it's because it goes back to John chapter 3. When I, I told you about Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And he says, you've got to be filled or you've got to be born of the water spirit. And then he went into this extended, or for two or three verses at least, where he says that the wind blows where it wants to. And that you can hear the sound of the wind, but you can't see where it's coming from or where it's going. You can hear it. You can see the effects of it. You can see the trees rustling, and you can see all of these things going on. And the, the leaves are blowing, but you can't actually see wind. So I, I think maybe that why wind shows up in Acts chapter 2 is he wants to make sure they don't miss that this is what I've been telling you about. It's not just some little thing that you can't miss. So he makes a big deal of it, and wind comes into the mix as a mighty rushing, and some translations say a violent wind, maybe hurricane-type forces of wind. And it's not anywhere but inside the room where they are. It fills the house or the room where they're sitting. That's one of the signs that show up. The next sign is there are divided tongues. It says, like as of fire. And I think the reason that we get fire here is because of what John the Baptist had said, that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And I think the reason he said fire initially, John the Baptist, is because of, as I said, it's that, it's that zeal, it's that passion, that it should do something in you. It's not just like, um, well, maybe make an analogy on the top, off the top of my head here that may not be the greatest, but if you have a bottle of water, you look at that bottle of water, you can shake that bottle of water up, you can do all kinds of things. And at the end, it's just, it's just doing nothing. It's just water. You take a soda, though. You shake that soda up, and you're going to have an explosion. And, and I think that that's kind of indicative of what it means when we're baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire, is that it shouldn't just be, yep, uh, it's just like it was just a moment ago. But that when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, it's going to do something. It's going to change us. It's going to transform us. There's going to be a reaction. And so I, I think that's maybe why he uses fire. But I think the only reason he uses fire here in Acts chapter 2, that fire shows up as a physical thing, is because John the Baptist said, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And 
He doesn't want them to miss it. They've got three years of already missing everything that he says. I'm going to die. No, that's not going to happen. Oh, my goodness, he died. What are we going to do? He kept telling you he was going to do this. He's telling you to wait for the promise of the Father. And he's like, I don't want you to miss it. Here's some wind. This is supernatural. You've got this hurricane going on inside the room, just in case you're wondering. That's not normal. That's something supernatural. Oh, and look, there's fire on their head. Cloven tongues like it's a fire. That's not normal. You can't miss. This is what he said was going to happen. But the third thing is that they were filled with the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is the sign that is all the way through the book of Acts. This is the sign that is still with us today. This is still the evidence of the Spirit coming and living on the inside of us. Once again, the Bible doesn't make a definitive case and say, this is why there are tongues. I could give you my opinion from Scripture. I could give you supporting Scripture. I could tell you in Isaiah 28, 11, that God is mad at Israel because they won't listen to Him. He keeps sending prophets and they keep telling the, the people of Israel, this is what God's going to do. And, and He uses a phrase, He said, with stammering lips and another tongue will God speak to this people, yet they will not hear. That probably has a dual fulfillment, but Paul takes that in 1 Corinthians 14, 21, and he says, these tongues that people are speaking, God said this was going to happen. It is a sign to unbelievers. That tongues is a sign to people who don't believe that God is real. Tongues is a sign to people who don't believe that God is actually doing something, that God is living and moving on the inside of an individual. And Jesus said in Mark 16, These signs shall follow them that believe. They shall cast out devils, lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. They shall speak with new tongues. That he has prophesied that people would speak with tongues. And so we must expect the fulfillment of Pentecost, just like it happened in the Bible. We must also experience Pentecost like they did in the Bible. Tongues is the only common denominator throughout scripture in all of the places where people are filled with the holy spirit speaking in other tongues is the common denominator since we moved to olathe we've been doing homeschool and i found out that a fifth grader really does know more than i do and uh Anna's actually in the sixth grade now, but getting into having to re- relearn fractions and do stuff, and they're using phrases. But one thing I never did for- forget was common denominator. And a common denominator is that which fits in all of these different categories. It's something that is common to multiple problems or multiple fractions or multiple math issues. It is the common denominator. And I would tell you that speaking in tongues is the common denominator it is the thing that is consistent all the way through acts chapter 8 or acts chapter 10 or acts chapter 19 and even today when people are filled with the holy spirit they speak with new tongues peter said of cornelius and i and i don't have time for the sake of time i'll, I'll not go into any detail on some of this but he said of cornelius 
whenever he and his household began to speak with tongues, he says, they received the Spirit just like we did at the beginning. There's no wind, there's no fire, but there are tongues. And he says, by the fact that they're speaking in tongues, that proves that God is not a respecter of persons. So now we need to baptize these people that have received the Holy Spirit just like we did. That we must experience Pentecost like they did in the Bible. And most of you here today have experienced that. And if you have not, I would love to see you experience everything that God has for you. But lastly, we must worship also like they did at Pentecost. We must worship like they did at Pentecost and throughout the Bible. Acts chapter 2 verse 15 Peter uses an interesting phrase, and he says, These are not drunk like you suppose. Now, drunk people act a certain way. They act drunk. They act, if I was to tell you to mimic how a drunk person would act, you would all do something fairly similar because you understand drunk people act a certain way. So you have all of these thousands of people that are in Jerusalem. And they're there for the Feast of Pentecost. I I don't know, the Bible doesn't say whether they heard the wind. The Bible doesn't say whether they saw the fire. We do know that they heard the tongues. And, And when they speak in tongues, the people hear They're speaking in all of these languages that these people know, 15 or 16 languages mentioned in Acts chapter 2. And they're like, man, these people are all from Galilee. How do they know our language? How do they know how we speak on the island of Crete and all of this list of languages? And so they're amazed at that. But they also think they're drunk. And they don't think they're drunk because they're speaking these languages. In fact, if you're drunk... You probably aren't going to be very fluent in another language, especially if you don't know it. But they're speaking these languages. It is like a train highway today out there. It is the day for them to catch up on all their shipping. So if you've been missing something, maybe you'll get it very soon. But I would submit to you that what's going on when they think that they're drunk is that they're acting a little crazy. They're a little excited. They're a little exuberant. They're doing more than just standing there speaking in tongues. And Peter says, these are not drunk like you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. We haven't been drinking. But he doesn't say that, and maybe you could take this a couple ways. These are not drunk like you suppose. They are drunk. They're drunk on the Holy Spirit. Or, Or maybe he's just like, you're supposing they're drunk, and that's not true. But I would tell you, I think they're acting and moving. They're a little exuberant and boisterous in their worship of God. We have biblical evidence for that. There are a number of different words in the Old Testament and and for the words or for the word praise that we see in the Bible, there's a number of different words that are used. The word halal, where we get hallelujah means to praise, to celebrate, to boast, or to rave. 
It means to verbally proclaim God's goodness and verbally talk about who God is. And, and if you missed it, I'll, I'll tell you, halal and hallelujah, it means, hallelujah means praise to Yahweh. But I told you about that A-H at the end of words, it's praise to Yahweh. That's what they're doing. It is hallelujah, it is praise to Yahweh. But it is a verbal proclaiming and celebrating or boasting and even raving about somebody. And when you think of the word rave, you say, man, they were raving. They probably weren't talking just like this. Yeah, I really don't like this person. No, I can't stand this person. And they're, they're raving. But that's what you do in a positive sense for God. He is awesome. He is the greatest. He's the best. Where you're boasting or raving about who he is. There's some action, there's some exuberance that goes with the word halal. It is, it is an exuberant talking about who God is. The word yada means to, uh, it comes from the word hand or to cast, and it means to, to, to wave the hand or to clap the hand. It's to do something with your hand. It's not just to say, yep, I have one. But you're using your hands in worship to God. That's why we clap our hands to the Lord as we go... And we put our words with that and we're praising him both verbally and we're praising him in the clap. Or we lift our hands and it could be a sign of surrender or it could just be a sign of saying, you are awesome or you are great. And so, yada, it is hands. Or tada is a, to give a sacrifice of praise or shabak to soothe the boast, to pronounce with a loud voice. Or the Hebrew word barak you got to get, get that guttural sound in there. Barach. It means to kneel. To kneel in surrender. To kneel in honor. To kneel in reverence. Or to ka. To strike. To smite. To clap the hands. Or makal. You probably haven't seen a lot of that here. But it means to twist. To leap. To dance. Or to twirl. Then when you get excited... And some of you are looking and wondering if I'm going to imitate that one. Probably not at the moment. But it means to dance, or to, twir to twirl, to leap. That you're praising God in the dance where you're excited and you're going, He is great. And, and if you've seen some old Jewish stuff or things like Fiddler on the Roof and they had certain kinds of uh, Jewish dance and folk dancing that they would do, take that and then up at a few levels because it's more spontaneous. It's not, I'm just going to do my little dance here if it's like a you know, country square dance. No, but I'm exuberant and I'm twirling and I'm leaping and I'm praising God because of what He has done. And you see that over and over when, when people are healed, the people that can't walk and all of a sudden they're healed, they begin to leap and to praise God in the dance, to twirl about and to do things they could not do before. Artihala, which means to sing a new song, to sing something different, to sing something new, or the word zamar, which means to play an instrument, it is praise to God. Psalm 150 is, as a musician comes, as Psalm 150, it is probably one of the capstone passages when it comes to praise, and we see this through out the passage, we see all of these different ways in which people praise God. And it says, praise the Lord. That's the, that's the Hebrew word, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. 
Praise Yahweh is what it really says. Hallelujah. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His firmament. Praise Him for His mighty acts. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise Him with the lute and the harp. Praise Him with the timbrel and the dance. Praise Him with stringed instruments and flutes. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with clanging or clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. That's what the psalmist said. That's what God desires, is He desires for us to praise Him. But praise is not a passive process. It is an active process. And so Pentecostal worship is... It's about being active. It's about doing something. It's not just about showing up, but it's about clapping our hands or lifting our hands or saying thank you Jesus or hallelujah or whatever you feel like saying to God. It's about playing on the instrument. It's about singing songs of praise and honor to God. Paul would say this in Ephesians 5:19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So why do we clap our hands and lift our voice and why do we get a little excited and we should probably get a little more excited than we typically do, but why do we do that? It's because it's what the Bible tells us we're to do when we praise God. It's not just to say, oh, thank you, Jesus. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it should be that and then some. It should be an exuberance and a passion that when you have the Holy Spirit and fire on the inside that you worship Him and you get passionate about what you're doing. So I'm going to invite you right now. This isn't in the notes, but I'm going to invite you right now. I want you to stand. And, and I, I want you to begin to praise God and, and, and praise Him. Maybe it start with a clap and you're just talking, thank you, Jesus, for who you are, or thank you for saving me. And just let, just let your imagination go as to how you want to praise God and to how you want to thank Him. But as Anthony begins to play in the background, would you do that? Would you begin to just thank the Lord and begin to praise Him for who He is? Jesus, You are great. You are awesome. You are mighty, Lord. We thank You for Your blessings, Your favor. We thank You for salvation. We thank You for what You have done in us. God, we thank You that You have called us into Your kingdom and that You have made us who we are in You, that You have brought us, Lord, into a place where we can work for you and be involved in what your kingdom's mission is, Lord. We pray, Lord, that your kingdom would come in us, that we would be exuberant in our praise and exuberant in our worship, that we would be everything that you called us to do, Lord. Let your spirit work in us, Jesus. Let your spirit work in us, Jesus. Why are we... Pentecostal. Why do we call ourselves Pentecostal? Because it's what the Bible says happened on that day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. That we believe, we practice it, we expect it, and we think that everybody should experience it. I have talked to more people shared the gospel with more people since I've been in Olathe than probably have in my entire life combined, which is not a good thing, but it's a good thing that I've shared it with a lot of people. 
not so good that I didn't do it all ways before. And in talking to various people and, and sharing to, the, to them what the Bible says about this, I found almost nobody that would say that what I'm showing them in the Scripture is not true. Or what I'm saying about the Scripture is wrong. Because, and you know this, if you've talked to people, you can talk to three people and they can all point to a verse and all say something different about it. Only one of those can be right and sometimes maybe all three of them are wrong. You have three people all saying something different. But, I've yet to have anybody say, no, that's not what the Scripture says, or that's not what it means. But I've had a lot of people tell me, I'm okay with where I am. Yep, that's, that's what the Bible says. I just don't think I want to do that. I don't think I need to do that. I, I don't... I don't see how that's important. Or or if I do that, what about my friends or family? And they didn't do that. There's all kinds of rationale people can, can make for not fulfilling and following the Scripture. But I would ask this question, sometimes people would, would say, well, do I have to? And to cut to the chase, the short answer is yes. There's a circuitous route to get there where it sounds a little more palatable sometimes to people, but the short answer is, yeah, you need to. But the question that I would ask of people when they say, do I have to, is I would say, why would you not want to? Why would you not want to experience what God has for you? That if God wants to give you more blessing, why would you say, no, I don't need that? You think I need it, but no, I'm good. You think I should want it, but no, I don't really want it. Why would you not want to experience everything that God has for you? Why would you not want to experience Pentecost? Why would you not want to worship and praise Him like He tells us that we should and that He wants us to? When it comes to praise, sometimes people, you hear people say this, and I've probably said it in various ways myself to try to make people feel more comfortable, but just worship God any way you want to. It's not necessarily true. God says that true worshipers must worship, must worship Him in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such to worship Him. But you don't have to clap your hands all the time, but if you never clap them, maybe that's that could be a problem. You, and you don't have to lift your hands all the time, but if you never lift your hands. You don't always have to sing, but if you never sing. 
You don't always have to boast in the Lord verbally and passionately, but if you never do that, then maybe you still need some of that fire. I visited, it's not in my notes, but I, I visited a number of churches of a variety of types. Most of them portable churches because we were launching in a portable scenario as we launched at the elementary school. But I, I would visit these churches and sometimes I would leave Because there would be anywhere from a dozen to hundreds of people in some of these places. Getting up early for the nine o'clock service. And going into a service where the bands may be good. just like just listening to the radio just, just kind of chilling out no clapping hands no singing along no lifted hands and consequently no move of the spirit no experiencing God no having God join in with them no feeling what I, I feel now and what I hope you feel the presence and power of God Pentecostal because that's what Peter and Paul they were Pentecostal that's what the early church was they were Pentecostal they experienced the day of Pentecost on an ongoing basis and they worshipped that way Acts 16 when Paul and Silas were in prison at midnight says they prayed and sang praises and the Spirit of God moved in their prison and the place was shaken and their bands fell off. That's what Pentecostal praise will do. It will bring the presence and power of God. And the spiritual bands and chains that bind us will fall. So I'm going to ask you today just to kind of gather around, stay socially distanced, gather around to the front. And just lift your voice, lift your hands, and would you talk to the Lord for a little bit? I've got five things listed. It's in the app. It's in the notes that I really want you to do as a result of this message, and I'll tell you them as you're coming. But to believe that the promise of Pentecost is for you. Expect the fulfillment of Pentecost to happen. Seek to experience it if you haven't, and if you have, seek to experience that in multiple times. It's not a one and done. It's not a, well, I, I had it happen and now oh, everything's good. No, you should continue to get in His presence and experience the Spirit of God rejuvenating you. And fourthly, to worship like they did at Pentecost. And I know many of you come from backgrounds where that's just still strange and because of maybe the size of our current congregation with COVID and all of that, it's you stand out if you get too crazy or you get too loud. And 
I get all of that. But he's worthy of that, whether you're by yourself or with, you're with two or three. He's still worthy of all the praise that we can give him. And lastly, tell others that they too can experience Pentecost. We don't have a fast song. We don't have a hype song. But would you just lift your hands where you are and would you begin to talk to the Lord today? Would you begin to love Him? Would you begin to offer Him praise and thanksgiving? Would you begin to just tell Him how wonderful He is? And would you tell Him how thankful you are that He is at work in your life? Jesus, thank You for the power of Your Spirit. Yes, Lord. We feel Your presence and Your power here right now. God, we thank you for what you're doing in us, Lord. We thank you for what you've done in the individuals in this congregation, Lord, for how you've saved them, how you've filled them with your spirit, Lord. I pray, Lord, that they continue to grow and that the passion and fervor for you would continue to expand. Let your spirit work in them, Lord. Let it work in me. I pray that we would be everything that you've called us to be that we would experience Pentecost on an ongoing basis, that we would, we would practice Pentecostal worship, that we would practice, Lord, being in your presence and being exuberant in our worship and thanksgiving to you. Yes, Lord, we love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. God, we magnify your name today. We magnify your name today, Jesus. We magnify your name today, Jesus. You are great and greatly to be praised. There's nobody like you. There's nobody like you, Jesus. We glorify your name. We glorify your name, Lord. Yes, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. We glorify your name today, Lord. We give you praise and honor and glory for who you are. We bless your name. We bless your name. We bless your name. time more time in closing would you give the Lord a hand clap and would you add your voice to that yes Jesus we bless your name Lord we praise you we praise you we praise you we give you glory and honor and praise and thanksgiving for who you are today in the name of Jesus in the name of Jesus God is good God is good We'll greet four or five people as socially distanced as they want you to be. Tell them you're glad to see them in the house of the Lord today. And let's go in Jesus' name. Have a great week. We'll see you Thursday night for Foundation 101. God bless you.